We Saved You a Seat is sponsored by the Oklahoma Family Network. Oklahoma Family Network focuses on supporting families of children and youth with special health care needs and disabilities, as well as families who have children with a mental health or behavioral health diagnosis. Oklahoma Family Network provides families with emotional support, resource navigation, parent-to-parent engagement opportunities, and wants to ensure quality health care for all children and families by building strong and effective family professional partnerships. Welcome back to part two of our conversation with Mandy and Christina. If you missed part one of this two-part podcast, please go back and download part one so that you don't miss out on any piece of their journey with Laurel. We will now join our conversation already in progress as they begin to share about their adjustment home after the NICU and learning the process of feeding Laurel with her new G-tube. So then we um, learned how to use the equipment, Mm -hmm. or so we thought. Um, (laughs) We thought we knew how to feed our child with this feeding machine. Um, Learned that over the weekend, and then we were waiting, 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 and then it was time to be released, and that all happens. Everyone tells you it happens very fast. It happens faster than you can even imagine. If you think you're ready to get out of there, they are ready to get you out of there, man. Um, That happens (laughs) so fast and it was kind of scary. Um, So we get all of our things and we finally leave the NICU and it was a big celebration. Everyone was very happy for us. We got to know everybody there really well. All of our doctors came and it was a really wonderful moment. We then got home that night and um, I struggled with the equipment. Um, I could not figure out how to do the bags. I called the emergency number and, um, for like the equipment and I was like, I can't be my baby. I'm freaking out. So anyway, we got all of that worked out and figured out and we kind of just, yeah, eventually became pros. Yeah. Yeah. We're really, we got really good at that. And in some ways it was kind of nice. So we had, we had like the IV pole and the feeding bag and the machine, the pump that would do her formula, but it was kind of nice because we woke up once or twice in the middle of the night to refill the bag, but she like never woke up and cried in the middle of the night because she was mm-hmm. never really hungry in the middle of the night. So like when other people fuss about, oh, the baby is so, we're so tired, blah, blah, blah. We're like, I didn't have that experience. Like that's weird. So that's what um, was over. That is, that is a silver lining of the feeding tube. Right. You just set that puppy to feed all night long. <laughs> yeah. You got to get up once it. or once or twice for diaper changes in the middle of the night. And that's it. But otherwise, like she's sleeping through the night, yeah. like off the jump and we're like this is not so bad (laughs) we also were able to administer medication through that g-tube which was also really nice we didn't have to force anything down her throat and i think that we must have missed a step about seizures um immediately after birth she was having seizures sorry about that i'm not to jump back to that but we were sent home on phenobarbital as a medication to control seizures and so um about nine months after we got home, we were given the clear to wean off of that. And mm-hmm. a couple of months later, she, she had her, her first, first seizure. seizure. And so, cause we thought like, oh, we're just being extra cautious. Blah, blah, blah. So we wean off the medication and then she has one seizure, which is a big deal. But then, um, we, that got taken care of in the emergency room. We saw our neurologist, she gave us some options. We weren't real hot on putting her on any pharmaceutical medication. Did we put her we on? We tried Keppra for a little while. Um, and we didn't like the way she behaved on it. 
she was just more person to person. Some people yeah. don't have that side effect, but that was a side effect that we noticed. Yeah, um, Laurel's a very like she's very jovial. She's very pleasant. Um, she's not often in a bad mood. So whenever we put her on the Kepra and she was so irritable, we were like, "This isn't our child. Like right. we don't like this." So I called the neurologist, like ready to fight, basically, and I was like, "Look, we don't want to be on this." I was like, "Look, we don't like the Kepra. We want to try CBD oil." And we don't really care, like, if you are on board with that or not. And the the secretary was like, actually, the doctor is very open to that. So, uh, (laughs) so she gave us some options. And um, so we've been on. uh, She she, did get diagnosed with epilepsy. Yeah, she was diagnosed with epilepsy because she had, um, had I want to say two or three more seizures. uh, Which are terrifying, by the way. Um, We called the ambulance. Like, it's, it's. It's absolutely terrifying. Yeah. Because mm-hmm. you've gone through the trauma of losing her already. Mm-hmm. And then when somebody has a seizure, like they're not there and their body does weird things. She had um, tonic clonic seizures. She had full, like, grandma. full grandma seizure. Like her body was doing the whole jerking thing. We we're calling ambulances. We're screaming, she can't breathe. She can't breathe. So going through that trauma again mm-hmm. was extremely difficult for both of us. We we're just beside ourselves. Like we've been home, everything's going well. It was normal for us. Our normal was different than everyone else's normal, but it had become a routine. And um, and then bam, we get hit with epilepsy mm-hmm. and it was horrible. It was just absolutely horrible for people that can't get that controlled. I just, yeah. it my was, heart. It was a bit deflating aches. because it kind of it's hit like at a time so where she was doing so well. Like we'd been doing so well for so long. And then you're just kind of hit with this new thing. That... Well, and it's like, she's not okay. Yeah. It's like, we thought, okay, she's going to be all right. She's going to be all right. We just have to keep trying and keep working and keep grinding away at this thing. And then it's like, oh, she's not okay. So we started the CBD oil and we did control it with CBD oil. Yeah. And we've been controlling it ever since. We've had some dosage issues along mm-hmm. the way where we've had a few ba- breakthrough seizures, which have since traumatized my in-laws. Um, <laughs> Because yeah. one of them happened at her house, so um, I feel horrible about that. But part of me is like, well, at least you know what to what, look for what can happen, what yeah. to look for, so we feel better about them um, being with her. But that was also kind of what prompted us searching for some answers as to why um, it was it was attributed to the brain damage. But I just felt yeah. like there was maybe more of a why. Like, why is this happening? Why are there so many? you know, different things that are kind of unexplained. Yeah, Christina was on that, like, almost from the beginning. So another thing that had happened is Christina had been complaining about uh, being able to feel Laurel's hips clicking. I had never felt it. Her PT couldn't feel it. Her PT couldn't feel it. Her pediatrician didn't feel it. Um, But Christina was adamant. She was like, no, I can feel her hips clicking. So we had taken her to an orthopedist actually to to check her spine because- For scoliosis, um, because she was so limp. And so her back was very, very curved. And I think that they were just trying to appease us. We kept (laughs) bugging them about it. Um, But they're like, yes, her tone gets better and she grows and gets more muscle tone. It'll stop. We're like, eh, I don't know. Let's get an x-ray and see if she has scoliosis just because, just to make us feel better. So they- They They were amenable to that. Mm -hmm. And they kind of incidentally caught her hips on that x-ray. And sure enough, they came back and they were like, oh, (laughs) she doesn't have scoliosis. And I'm like, what's going on down here with those those hips? hips. This doesn't look right. It was completely dislocated. Yeah, Um, her right hip was completely dislocated. So 
So she had hip dysplasia. dysplasia. So now, which is not uncommon in children with cerebral palsy. Right. Um, So It's actually fairly common. Yeah, but it's more common in children who are stiff, which is kind of another thing is hypertonic yes is we you know her pediatrician kept commenting every well visit like he's like I cannot believe that this child isn't stiff as a board she should be stiff like her and her muscles should be hard yeah and she should be very moving. rigid and she just never was she She's, was always loose she was always very loose very hypotonic very very hypotonic. So they were like, okay, well, she's, she's got hypotonic. It just went the other way. Which is also super rare. It's like 10%. Yeah. It's, it's not very common for, for a child with, with a brain injury like that to then be loose. How old was she when y'all discovered this, um, when y'all went in for the x-ray and discovered the hips? probably about maybe maybe less than a year old she was less than a year old um because we didn't have that first surgery until shortly after her first birthday um so she was probably about nine months at that point and you know of course they tried they tried to do the brace brace first but she was a bit too old for it like you really have that really works like whenever they're really really little but they you know wanted to try it uh that didn't work so um she had her first surgery to uh, try to correct the hip dysplasia just after her first birthday. So we had that surgery. They did a femoral shortening. So they they cut some of that femur and rotated it and tried to get it positioned where it's supposed to be. Uh, put her in a cast, in a spike of cast for six weeks. Um, took the cast off. And I want to say within about what four months, maybe right back out. Uh, the hips, the right hips back. came right back out. So we had surgery again, shortly before her second birthday. Uh, this time the doctor said, you know, let's leave her in the spica cast much longer because if we do that, then those ligaments should tighten up and those should help keep the Everything femur in place. In place. Uh, so she had the second surgery um, and was in the spica cast this time for six months. <laughs> Which was horrible. Which was the worst. The spica cast is a cast that goes essentially from her G-tube, otherwise it would have been higher, all the way to the ankles. And it has an opening for a diaper, a diaper. or a pad, mm-hmm. um, which is not the easiest thing to keep clean. It's heavy. It's not pleasant to travel in. It's just all around difficult, but we made it work. We decorated them and, yeah, you know, she, we, you know, she would get around on the floor a little bit and. Yeah. Throughout all this time, we should mention that Laurel continues to improve. Yeah. Like, you know, she starts holding her head up. It's later than what a, a typical baby would do, but she, she can hold it. her head up and eventually. She eventually rolled over. She can roll over and she can <clears throat> sit up and she smiles at us and. She could roll over in the cast. Oh yeah, oh yeah, she did. She figured that. Out. She figured out how to shut doors in that cast. Oh yeah, I Which, forgot about that. It she was, was like hilarious. it was awesome. She would <laughs> shimmy herself into position, then knock it with the other leg. It was very yeah, impressive. Yeah, it was actually. a whole ordeal. But she was like, I don't know why that was a thing for her, but she was like, I'm gonna shut this door and I'm gonna figure out how to do it in this cast. Yeah. So oh. you just watch me. Yeah. So she figured out how to army crawl in that cast. Mm-hmm. More the second one than the first, from mm-hmm. what I can recall. 
did she ever attempt to walk uh, prior to any of that surgery or either of the dislocated hips? She did crawl, but no, um, no walking. No walking. It, she was, um, I want to say she was like two and a half. She was two and a half when she started finally pulling up. It was after. It was after the surgeries. Yeah. Yeah. So no, not, not before the surgeries, there was really no attempt to try walking. She probably couldn't, even if she had wanted to. Uh, she just didn't have the strength and her legs were pretty atrophied anyway from, you know, being casted and whatnot. So yeah, and PT really was more like strike crossing midline and let's, yeah, we were still dealing with a lot very of basic. basic neurological things at this time as well. I mean, she's, she's doing better. Um, she's improving. We we're celebrating inch stones. That's something that we learned. Yeah. Um, you know, and we really like looked at it through a lens. I remember very clearly of just gratefulness. I was, we were, obviously you don't want it to go through any of this. Nobody does, but we were almost grateful to be grateful. It was like things that everyone takes for granted. And that's something that we kind of learned talking to others in the NICU too, is things like walking and things like eating and things like talking and babbling things that other people take for granted, we struggled for and we worked towards, worked so hard for so long through so many therapy appointments for just the tiniest little bit of improvement. And so every inch stone, like Mandy said, not a milestone, but every single thing she did was celebrated, which definitely is noticeable now yeah. because she expects <laughs> to be celebrated constantly and gets very <laughs> excited when she is celebrated. But um, we definitely, it was like anything that she improved on or anything that she was able to do, we were just thrilled about. And yeah. I felt- And in awe of just- Yeah, just look at what this kid has been through mm -hmm. and how far she's come and what she's able to do. And I'm just so grateful for that perspective um, because I don't think that people who haven't gone through something like that realize how good they have it. And so coming from this place of this horrible trauma and all of this awful, these awful diagnosis and- all this struggle came like this beautiful gratefulness that she was even with us, that she was able to do what she could, could do, that she showed us what she could. It was like, instead of being upset and angry and feeling like, oh, why is this happening to us? It's like it turned into just being so thrilled at every single moment. Mm -hmm. And so I am thankful in a way that we've gone through all of this not that I want her to struggle, but I'm thankful in a way for that perspective, for being able to see things through that lens of gratefulness. I just think that that was a big part of yeah. the first couple of years for us. We were just so excited about right. everything. That well, she you could also do. learn in other areas of life not to take things for granted from having gone through that, you know? So there, our mantra, if you will, <laughs> through all of it has always been to find the silver linings. Right. Um, you know, we found several with the feeding tube and she did eventually, she, she, eventually she was able to learn to eat and eventually we were able to get that feeding tube out. And I'm not going to lie. There was a part of me that was a little sad to see it go. Cause I was like, if she, now if she gets sick, like we have to, make, we her have take to like make her take Tylenol and we have to make her drink fluids and we have to, you know, we didn't have to worry about any of that before if she you know, got a stomach virus, we just pump those fluids right through that tube. Yeah, we have to worry about dehydration. Worry about being dehydrated, like, you know, there are definitely great things about that. So we always try to look for those little perks mm -hmm. um, and focus on some of those things instead of feeling 
cruddy right. about whatever we were facing. Right. When she was not that cast. it was always <laughs> glorious, but yeah. it's like we tried to. When she was in the cast, we we're like, well, you know, she can't run know, away. She can't run away. She can't get we into something she that she's not supposed to be getting into while we're going to the bathroom. Like, you know, so, you know, it's been super helpful for us to try to find those little pieces of joy in in the turmoil in the turmoil yeah I almost said misery but (laughs) such an important message to be able to send um, to families while they're experiencing some very traumatic and and very uh, deep grief through expectations that were lost powerful if I I could on the expectations part um, I did want to just bring up that in the beginning you're in such a world of uncertainty and we Mm -hmm. did not know what to expect and you hear people say like it gets better it gets better and it really does no matter how serious um your diagnoses get and um it's like you start to be able to see the path that you're on so no matter how severe or mild whatever you're going through is eventually through a couple of years of doctors and specialists and everything, like eventually you can kind of see where you're headed and it does actually get easier. I didn't believe anybody. They say, oh, it's gets easier. It's going to get better. I was like, no, it's not. It's going to keep being crazy. And I'm never going to like be on firm ground. And I'm always going to be worried about her, but it actually does. Yeah. It's like, once you know what's going on with the kid and what to expect, it becomes much like, okay, now we can come up with a plan. Now we can help support her. Now we can get her what she needs to be the best her that she can be. But at the beginning, when you have no idea what's going to happen, Mm -hmm. it is terrifying. Like that's horrible. And it's also the first year for us in particular, at least, is just diagnosis after diagnosis. So you just keep hearing, now this is wrong. Now this is wrong. And I remember the second time that I had a breakdown about her, um, was so we had mentioned that she failed her hearing screening in the NICU uh, so we got a referral to have another hearing test done once we were out of the hospital uh, which we did with the referral that the hospital gave us um, and they were politely like this is inconclusive so <laughs> um, they wanted us to come back and so what they were doing are sleep deprived ABRs uh, so you have to try to not let your baby nap for several hours so that they can do this hearing exam while they're asleep, which is a nightmare. And I was in no way really wanting to continue to do that. So we fortunately had somebody, and I don't remember who, say, have you called Hearts for Hearing? What's Hearts for Hearing? (laughs) No, haven't called them. So (laughs) I got on the phone with them, found out that they treat children for free up until the age of three. So we made an appointment. We had the ABR. I brought my mom with me. Christina had had something going on. She couldn't make it. So I took my mom with me. I remember for this ABR uh, that they did. And once it was over, uh, they said to me, Laurel absolutely has uh, sensory neuro hearing loss. And to this point, she'd been like responding to mm-hmm. us. She was, I mean, like yeah. we so thought, kind of, oh, they're probably just wrong. Yeah, she's, she's <laughs> just got fine. fluid in there. She's just got fluid. That's, it'll be fine. Because that's who we are as people. Everything's always going to be fine. It's all just fine. So they tell me that. And it kind of, even though in, in, in hindsight, whenever you're looking at like the grand scope of everything we've been through, that's really like so minor <laughs> on the scale of it all. 
but it was just, it hit me like a ton of bricks. I was like, you know, this is just another hurdle that she's going to have to find a way to overcome and that we're going to have to find a way to overcome. And I just was tired of hearing, you know, you've got, now you have this as well to figure out. I definitely had a really hard time accepting that. Mm -hmm. I had a hard time accepting that she was as impaired as she was. And then when this sweet, sweet audiologist and, and speech therapist set me down and said the word cochlear implant, I kind of lost my mind. And I was like, I didn't really lose my mind, but I was kind of like, no, she's not going to have that. We are not going to touch her head. She had a brain injury. We're not messing with her head. We're not messing with her ears. I don't want it. I don't want any part of any of that. And they're like, well, you know, you kind of, if she's going to have typical language development, we really need to do that before she's two and, you know, try to, you know, trying to kind of coax me. And I was like, I'll think about it. Leave me alone. And so <laughs> I went away and then I kind of thought about it. And what I did was I actually joined a bunch of Facebook groups of people that have cochlear implants. And, um, I just started reading and even the people who ended up not wearing their cochlear implants, um, because they decided that they'd rather, be deaf and use sign language, none of them regretted trying. None of them regretted getting the cochlear implant. I didn't want to make that kind of a decision for somebody who can't make that decision for themselves because, you know, there are people who just grow up deaf and maybe she would prefer that. I don't know. But in reading all of these posts and, and, and reaching out to that community, I learned that almost everyone was super, super grateful to have the technology. So that made me feel a lot better. And so I came back in with a fresh attitude and I said, hey, let's do this. We had all kinds of insurance issues. They did mm -hmm. not want to pay for her cochlear. So then we come from this place of I'm not doing that to like fighting to get this technology for this child. Um, we found out that it's tremendously expensive because we started looking into self-pay and um, we couldn't really find the money for it. So we just started fighting the insurance and eventually we argued our way into them giving in and she was able to get the cochlear implant, which she's done remarkably well with. So she does have a hearing aid on her right ear and a cochlear implant on her left ear. And when we explain it to her friends on the playground, we just say, that's Laurel's robot ears and they help her hear. Um, Cause they're like, oh, that's different. Um, mm -hmm. But yeah, she did really, really well with that. And uh, so she was um, mild, moderate on her right ear and uh, severe, profound on the left ear. Uh, so that kind of started us on our hearing loss journey. So now we've got a submucous cleft palate. We've got um, epilepsy. epilepsy. We've got the weird vein in the weird position <laughs> from the doctor. We've got the sacral dimple. We've got the bilateral hip dysplasia. Um, because of the brain injury, we very much are keeping an eye out for signs of uh, CVI. Uh, which cortical visual impairment yes cortical visual impairment which is which we had several therapists say that they felt like she had issues with vision um, mm -hmm. um so basically that's where like your brain just can't interpret what you're seeing it's not that you can't see uh your brain just can't really make sense of it um so we've been we've been on the lookout for that um and we got an appointment with a neuro ophthalmologist here in the city to kind of test for that. She doesn't have CVI. Um, yeah, but she, she did have to have another MRI done before we did the cochlear implant. So this had to be after. Oh, yes. Um, which, um, her- Because that was her last chance. When you have a cochlear implant, you can't get MRIs anymore. So we're like, you know what? 
her neurologist is like, let's just get one last MRI to see like where she's come from the NICU to now. And since it's our last chance, they might need to use that for placing the cochlear and just for for posterity. I don't know. Right. (laughs) Yeah. So we get this MRI and um, her brain healed remarkably well from- There was almost no damage. Birth trauma. Um, Yeah, almost no lasting damage. Um, The only noticeable thing that uh, she saw was that her brainstem is smaller than what it should be for a child her age. And the way she explained that is, um, you know, your brainstem is kind of like, um, yeah, your information superhighway of your brain. So if there's not, if if there's not as much information going through, then it's not going to grow at the rate that most people's would. That's the way it was explained to us. So, so she was diagnosed with brainstem atrophy. Mm-hmm. Um, the neurologist, though, it was a very, very nice visit. She was like, I'm shocked because um, she was the same neurologist that saw her in the NICU. And she's like, I cannot believe that she is healed like this. This is, I mean, just basically unheard of. So we're like, oh, look at us. Um, this is another like positive, <laughs> fantastic review from Laurel. Like she's just such an over achiever yeah it was a great report and so we were like kind of shocked like yeah. oh, okay I guess she doesn't have brain damage and she doesn't have this severe you know effect from the brain injury and and you know every time again like she said every time we go to the doctor the pediatrician or the neurologist they're all just blown away by how much she's doing how well she's doing how much she's improved it was very clear because we've been with the same medical team from the beginning that they did not expect her mm-hmm. to do as well as she was doing yes for sure. So everything had been blamed on this brain injury, but yeah. come to find out it's not that severe. And so I had a lot of questions that whole time. Mm-hmm. Um, the whole, her whole first two years, I was like Googling everything you've ever thought to Google. Um, I was doing all the things they say not to do. I was looking everything up. I was joining all the mom groups. Um, I know more about, I could probably go back to school and just ace everything because I know more about medical conditions than I ever cared to but I was trying to figure out what is going on with this child because everything yes. is being blamed on this brain injury. But to me, that doesn't make sense. Mm-hmm. And so that's when um, we really started pushing for genetic testing. Yeah. So yeah, the uh, neuro-ophthalmologist looked at um, that second MRI as well. And he noticed that her um, optic nerves are also much smaller than they should be, which he said would not in any way be attributed to a brain injury at birth. So he, all, he, he kind of also started pushing and said, you should probably get some genetic testing done to see what's going on here. Um, he wouldn't, I was kind of pushy. I was like, well, do you, is there any kind of like something that you have in mind? And he was, he wouldn't, he wasn't giving up anything. He was like, nope, nope, nope. I'm not taking that bait. Um, so we got on the phone with her neurologist, pushed. Um, and she's like, well, it's not really going to change the course of treatment. So we probably don't need the genetic testing. I was like, ah, I'd feel better if we did genetic testing. So we kind of pushed on that one. We are like the most polite pushers you've ever met. So like we've, our whole experience with Laurel, we are like just politely pushing her along. So we're mm-hmm. like, yeah, we'd really feel better if, and so we just like politely try to nudge people in the direction that we, yeah, we want to so we'll out. just make continued polite phone calls if we have to we continually mm-hmm. politely call the insurance company or the doctor or the specialist um so i would encourage others to also try to keep your temper down if if you know you get kind of emotional yes. about it just politely push but we politely pushed for genetic testing yes and um, she was finally politely receptive yeah. <laughs> to the genetic testing yeah our neurologist yeah um 
So I'll let you. So those results came back and they, um, they tested me too, to see if it was, you know, if they, that's what they do. They mm -hmm. just, to see if it's genetically inherited, whatever. Um, and so those results came back and we got the phone call from the nurse that we were quite close to in the neurologist office. And <laughs> I kind of got some extra information out of her before we went up there. She's like, okay, the results are in. Um, so, uh, you know, the doctor would like to see you. We're going to schedule you for this date. And I was like, okay, um, should we be worried? And she's <laughs> like, she's like, it's going to be okay. <laughs> and I was like, okay, okay. So like, I had the word that like, it's going to, it's not that bad. Like whatever we're about to hear is not going to be a dire thing. Mm -hmm. And so we go in and she had a, um, a mutation of unknown significance, which is what they say when they don't have enough data on the specific mutation that you have to know whether or not it causes something. Um, so her particular mutation, we have since seen specialists at Boston Children's Hospital, and we have found out that this is the first time he's ever seen somebody present with this specific mutation. So that's why it was like unknown significance. Um, it's like they can't say for sure that she has this or that syndrome. It's just that people with that genetic mutation or a similar genetic mutation sometimes have this syndrome or that syndrome. So mm -hmm. she was diagnosed clinically at the time of our um, genetic results of having Kabuki syndrome, which sounds like you know, who wants to hear that their kid has a genetic condition, but the second they started explaining it to me, it was such a relief. It was like, oh my God, this all makes sense. I'm getting chills talking about it. Like this all makes sense. All of the weird things. I was like, oh my God, she's got that. Oh my gosh, she's got that. They're telling us different, different characteristics, different, you know, different um, symptoms of this genetic disorder and all of it starts falling in place. I'm like, oh my God, she has like 80% of all these things. And so it was like such a relief that that hunt and that search was finally concluded. Like, oh, thank God I can like rest at night and stop trying to figure out what is going on with this kid. So it was very strange because I was expecting to go in and hear, like get hit with a ton of bricks again with another weird diagnosis. And this one was like so freeing. It was like, oh, thank God we know what to expect. We can look up, does this affect life expectancy? Does this affect you know, her outcome as an adult, does it affect her cognitive abilities? Like, um, so all of these answers started to come, which was, I'm so grateful for. I know that there are a lot of kiddos out there that clearly something is going on genetically, but their parents don't have those types of answers. So I'm just so grateful to have gotten that diagnosis. And she's since had a couple of additional um, genetic tests that have come up with some additional things that might be wrong with her, but clinically, that's the only thing that really fits. Mm -hmm. um, it just made everything make sense. Um, so Kabuki syndrome, it's like, a, it's, it's, it's a spectrum, <laughs> basically. Um, a lot of children that have Kabuki syndrome um, have hypo, hypoplastic left heart syndrome, which we, we did not end up having that. A lot of children with Kabuki syndrome have um, issues with their kidneys. Horseshoe kidney. Uh, horseshoe kidney in particular, um, which we also don't have an issue with that. Um, once we got the diagnosis, her neurologist set up uh, some extra testing for her heart and her kidneys just to make sure, you know, they were, they were fairly certain that we would have caught that by now. <laughs> you know, at this point, she is um, three years old when we get this diagnosis. Um, but it explains, um, it explains low tone. the low muscle tone. 
It explains, it could explain the hearing loss. It explains the submucous cleft palate. It explains the uh, physical abnormalities um, as far as its sacral dimple, skeletal um, abnormalities, abnormalities with her hip dysplasia. Children with Kabuki syndrome have, um, it's called Kabuki syndrome because um, they have specific facial features that kind of, um, at the time of its discovery, they felt like kind of looked like the makeup that um, people who do Kabuki theater um, make their face up to look like with the arched eyebrows and the eyes kind of going downwards and the depressed nose and she's missing a few teeth, <laughs> uh, baby teeth, and that's a part of it. So it's just everything just started falling into place, all of the things that we couldn't explain. Um, her neurologist went back. Slower development too. Yeah. Um, they don't talk usually until four. Mm -hmm. They um, get started crawling and walking much later. So all of that was... Yes. There is um, a lot of kids with Kabuki syndrome do have cognitive impairment, and that is also on a spectrum. There are some children that are very severe with that, and then there are some children that are totally fine cognitively. That are mainstreamed in school and mm -hmm. just behaving like other kiddos, so that yeah. gives you some hope at least. Yes. It's like, oh, well. Um, there are also some behaviors fall on the autism spectrum as well with Kabuki syndrome, um, stimming for and... Laurel in particular, she does do, she does do a, a, a fair amount of, of stimming. She does do some arm flapping when she's excited. I think that's mostly it with Kabuki syndrome. It's kind of neat in a way that they look similar. So uh, when I see other kids with it, or I see pictures of other kids, I'm like, I kind of love them a tiny bit because they look like my baby. So I'm like, <laughs> it's kind of neat. And it's all ethnicities. It's all over the world. It's one in 30,000 kids are born with Kabuki syndrome. Uh, a lot of them are living normal adult lives. Um, some of them have to have long-term care. You know, for the most part, as far as genetic conditions go, we kind of lucked out. I mm -hmm. felt like we, uh, oh, another really wonderful feature of Kabuki syndrome is a pleasant disposition, a love for music. They're just cheerful people. Like, and, and I'm just sitting here thinking about all of the different genetic things that could happen to her. And we happen to hit on the one well, maybe there's more than one, but I don't think there are a ton of them that just make you generally pleasant. Like, <laughs> that is such a bonus. Like, so right. we felt very lucky that we got this genetic condition versus a different one. So, um, again, a silver lining, but um, I don't know if I said love of music mm -hmm. is part of it. Um, a lot of these kiddos and adults just have an extra affinity. special love and affinity for music. Um, absolutely does. Like, you put on a song that she likes and... Man. she immediately just glues right into that. So, uh, which is fun for me because I love music. Um, most people with Kabuki syndrome itself doesn't shorten lifespan for people that have Kabuki syndrome. It's uh, typically um, the, the ones that have the heart issues and or the kidney issues, other things that can be associated with the Kabuki syndrome that could be a risk factor, uh, be a risk factor for um, a shorter lifespan. But that was just such a relief to us to know that she generally could look forward to a somewhat normal lifespan because that was kind of part of the mm -hmm. whole thing from the beginning was like, is she just gonna like, yeah, you know, um, not make it um, one day? Mm -hmm. So, and then of course, um, her neurologist went back through all of her notes and was trying to figure out why all this time she had been attributing all of this to her birth. And she came back and she said, you know, I had forgotten 
how critical she was. And she was like, so there would have been no reason for me to, or anyone really to suspect anything, any of her delays would be because of anything other than this. I think it was just us. We were the only ones that were really pushing that thought that it was maybe something different. It was mostly you, let's be honest yeah. about that. So. Try to be nice. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, I just always in my heart felt like something else is going on with this kid. Um, so if you feel that in your mom heart, keep searching because you're usually right. And in our experience, mm-hmm. I have been dead on every time I think there's something wrong with this kid. So um, if people don't believe you, see another specialist. If somebody, you know, if somebody blocks you from finding answers, get somebody else that's going to talk to you and, and search with you. Um, but I, I kept, and I remember through these years thinking like, who is supposed to be helping us with this? And it's really on you. It's on you as the parent to, I mean, there are, there are pediatric developmental, you know, pediatricians and those kinds of things, but it's really on you to kind of get the referrals and push and make sure that they're seeing everybody that they need to see. And we have a, a wonderful pediatrician. I can't say enough nice things about him, but it's not necessarily like he makes sure she's okay, but it's on us to make sure that we're, you know, searching for those answers and making sure that she's getting all the diagnoses that she needs and seeing all the specialists she needs. So I just think it's important that, you know, parents are aware that, you know, if you feel like something's wrong, then you need to try to find those answers because you probably, mm-hmm. you know, they're not just going to come. We've always said like, we're the experts on Laurel, like we know her. And so it's important to, to voice that for her. Yeah, that true advocacy piece from the parent perspective. You mentioned that they tested you as at the same time they tested Laurel. Did anything show up in your uh, genetic components? No, um, I do have a family history of some immunosystem weirdness, um, some Hashimoto thyroid stuff in my family. Thinking back on my pregnancy, I feel like I was extra tired. Um, so I think I may have had some thyroid stuff going on. I don't really know. It's just like in hindsight, maybe you try to like figure things out afterwards. So at the time we seem, is he normal, but I've only ever had one. So what do I know? Um, so I feel like there may be some component of family heredity, but nothing came up as like, you are diagnosed with this, but that being said, you can be normal genetically and still be a carrier for things. So that field is just so new and blossoming it's like literally they will rerun her old results and find new things um Mm -hmm. because it's just every day it's an exploding science so they've um, come back with two new mutations but they (laughs) do think that hers was what they call de novo which means just at some point during her development something changed and she has this difference um, from everybody else but I also kind of wonder if the loose muscles um, kind of played into the cord becoming wrapped around her neck. So I just, it's hard not to think about why did this happen or how did this happen? And I kind of feel like that may have played a role in that happening to her um, specifically, but who knows? Yeah. Because we've, of course, we've asked other parents on Kabuki pages if, if they have, if they experienced anything similar to what we went through with her birth and no, no. <laughs> we're, we're extra lucky. We're in that extra way. special. <laughs> um, but something really that, go, go get that lottery ticket now, please. I know, right? <laughs> really, really. <laughs> right? We, we joked the other day about how we have like the best bad luck, right? <laughs> like, you know, these bad things, happen to but us like in the greatest somehow, way it's like, like the yeah best way. somehow in the best way <laughs> they you know they, they end up okay um we've also had conversations about 
how it, we we aren't happy. Obviously, we would never have wanted her birth to go the way that it did, but we're kind of grateful for it now because now it doesn't feel so much like this horrible thing happened to her at birth that dramatically changed the course of her life. She was going she to was be have, on a different path anyway. Yes. Um, but if that hadn't happened, then we wouldn't have, we would have just slowly realized over time that she's not we wouldn't have developing it as quickly as other children. We wouldn't have had the immediate intervention that we had because I'm telling we had this kid in therapy at about nine weeks old. No, it was like three weeks old because I had them in the <laughs> in, in the, the NICU, NICU doing it. So it's immediately yeah. I was like, oh, we're gonna get therapy. We heard we heard early intervention is important, and we were like, we're, we were serious about it. So otherwise, we wouldn't we wouldn't have done that. You know, we she wouldn't have been in therapy from the time she came home from the hospital. So yet another silver lining in in something, you know, that, that was seems... really quite tragic at the time, but in hindsight ended up being helpful right it's hard to say that and you know what because it was just so dramatic and so awful you know for the most part but but if it hadn't then you know we wouldn't have been on top of all of her delays from the very beginning so very very true tell me about her today oh I'm so excited I was waiting for you to ask this <laughs> she is like the most amazing happy joyful fantastic kid you've ever met and I'm not just saying that for me like other people fall in love with her too um she's like I think overall like what can any parent hope for except for their kid to be happy and dang it she's happy like she is just the happiest human I've ever met in my life mm -hmm. like if she's not happy and having a good time something is wrong like she is sick something is wrong because I mean she just she attacks everything with 110%. She works hard every single week at therapy. Um, we call and give each other progress reports because we kind of tag team it. And it's every single week. It's like she, she killed it. She worked so hard. She tries so hard. She struggles in a lot of areas. She struggles with um, like coloring and writing and speech but we can understand what she says. She makes leaps and bounds. She's started to, she's five and a half now and she started to do sentences. Um, she, what does she do? She sings. She, we have some karaoke thing that she was doing with Moana. She's got a favorite Disney movie. She has favorite colors. She knows how old she is. She, she knows um, her name. She knows her name. She has pets and she checks on them. And she has friends that she, she's not really able to tell us stories yet, but we kind of, sometimes she'll talk about playing at the playground with her friends and she has will and she wants to go do things and she knows what she wants she knows what she wants to wear especially mm -hmm. um you'll find her in the closet going through all her clothes going <laughs> this one mo this one mo so she she is a diva about her outfits she loves wearing neon she's just like this out there fantastically wild but like fun kid and so I feel like we have more than we could have ever hoped to have. We were given like this bleak, yucky outlook. And I feel like it's all supposed to be this way, like that she's who she is. Um, I would say if somebody was classifying her, it's actually really 
I won't say fun. It's an interesting exercise whenever somebody asks us about her medical history. So we have to write down all the things from, we always say, where do you want us to start? And they say at the beginning and we go, oh, and so we start writing down all the things. And it's like, usually we're on the back of the paper and we're still writing and, and they get the paper and, you know, the doctor reads the paper first and then they come in the room and they're always shocked by what they see because it is in no way is that paper representative of Laurel. It's just not who she is. She's very super crazy resilient. Like she's mm -hmm. just, she's in, in some circumstances, she seems like a normal kid. Like when you're at the playground and she's playing with others, you can tell she has some physical impairment. You can see the hearing aids, but sometimes every once in a while, she just seems totally normal. And I'm like, holy moly, this kid went from like having, you know, this horrible outlook to just being sort of normal-ish. Um, I would say that most people would say that she's maybe mild or on the more severe side of mild. Um, in some things, she's she's pretty delayed in a lot of areas, but I have full faith that she is going to make up all the ground. Um, I am determined that she is going to be, well, I mean, there's, we are so thankful for her special education and all of the therapy and support that she gets, but I'm bound and determined that she's going to be in a typical classroom. And until she is proven to be unable to keep up we're gonna push to let her try um I feel like we're always pushing for people to give her a chance to let her try to let them let her show us if she, she struggles with um the word can't is a big problem for us um we don't use the word can't in this house we don't allow the word can't in this house we don't treat her as if she, we treat her as if she can do everything um, and every time we do that, we let her show us, that's what Mandy always said, like, let her show us what she's capable of. Um, we never assume she can't anything. Mm -hmm. um, we don't ever say, like, if she said, I can't, I would be shocked. I don't even know that she understands the concept. So we just always assume ability. And then she usually exceeds my expectations anyway, mm -hmm. in a lot of areas. I'm always like, holy crap, look at what she's doing. Like, this is so amazing. <laughs> like, I'm shocked. And how well she does with X, Y, and Z. That's not to say she doesn't struggle. She does. It takes her much longer to um, pick up concepts, to, you know, intellectually understand certain things. Um, she doesn't really understand consequence the way a typical five and a half year old would. She doesn't really understand danger the same way. But that being said, I think that she overcomes a lot of that. And it's, it's I would rather have the joyful, fun, happy kid, you know, mm -hmm. that struggles in a few areas than than anything else. And I feel like um, she's who she's supposed to be. And we're grateful that she's ours. And I feel like it was meant to be, like that she was meant to be with us. Um, and she's just brought so much joy and she just yeah. kills it all the time. She, literally, I, she's changed our whole family. She's brought all of us, I feel like, a lot closer together. I think she, it's great. She's got some cousins that are near her age and some that are a little bit older, but I think them getting to experience. Like they got to help feed her through the feeding tube. Mm -hmm. And they, they've always been really interested in what's going on with her. And kids are so awesome in that way because they just ask. They're like, oh, what's, why is that? That's different. What's going on here? Mm -hmm. Can I help? Can I feed her? Can I touch her hearing aid? Can I, you know, and adults will just like stand back and watch. Um, yeah. But kids are so cool in that they just get right in there, man. And we would rather somebody ask or somebody you know, like we're happy to talk about it, but, um, we love talking about it. <laughs> we'll right. talk about Laurel as long as anyone wants to talk about right. Laurel. 
but I think before it happened, we too would have felt awkward about that. Like I would never walk up to a kid with differences and be like, oh, um, what's going on with that cochlear? What's, what's that on the back of their head? I would never do that. I would feel like that's rude. But now, you know, from the other side, I'm like, please ask. We're happy to talk about it. And it makes it easier and like more comfortable for everyone. And she knows she has it. We know she has it. It's like, so anyway, kids are really cool in that way and that they will just say it. And we've had a lot of people just approach us like out in public, like, oh, look, she's having such a good time. Oh, I have a cochlear or my dad has a cochlear or whatever. And so it, it, that among other things opens a lot of doorways to meet new people. I would say that we weren't really super outgoing before, but now with Laurel, like she is exceptionally outgoing. And so she's like, hi, hi, I'm Laurel. And she's like, you know, introducing herself to strangers all day. And so we get probably to be a better part of our community as a whole. We get to know a lot of people that we wouldn't know otherwise. Um, you mentioned her possibly going into a typical classroom. So, so why don't you tell me about kind of the school experience that y'all have had up to this point? Oh boy. We went in like armed and ready. Um, cause you know me. So I was like, I, I was, I had read, we read all the books. We went to all the classes. This is all before even our first IEP. Um, yeah. Sooner Start kind of like prepped us a little bit. They're like, well, yeah, you know, you might need to, you know, push for this or that and I'll be there and don't worry. And we had a great experience with Sooner Start. We trusted her with our life. But we went in like ready to fight for what she was owed. And that just wasn't in our circumstance super necessary, thankfully. Um, yeah, her IEP experience was great. And then we also were fortunate enough uh, to fall into special care when she was an infant. Yes. And so from 12 weeks until she started school. She went to special care, which is a daycare. It is geared towards children with special needs, but they have kids there of all abilities. And we feel 100% that being around her peers is why she started eating uh, by mouth because she very much observes. She does it at the playground still. She'll kind of sit back and watch what other kids are doing and then she wants to try to do what everyone else is doing. So when we, which has served us well now that we've transitioned to public school because we knew going in that she needed to be be around typical peers you know we're not opposed to her being in the special education setting but she needs that exposure because you know especially here in these early education years where they're still learning a lot through play you know we want her to have that example of that type of play from typical children as much as she can get it um, because she mimics so well and we know that that's how she learns best. Um, so having that experience at special care really prepared us going in. Right and we had letters from our teachers mm-hmm. like she needs to be around typical kids. This is how she does best and so um, I think that the normal placement for a kiddo like her would just be straight into special ed and straight into special needs classes. We were lucky in that we had a um, blended pre-k experience they mm-hmm. had an integrated classroom so they allowed her um, we kind of had to push gently push politely um, and mm-hmm. got her into that integrated classroom which she thrived in mm-hmm. and um, this year she's in kindergarten and we gently pushed mm-hmm. for about 30 minutes during the IP meeting to make sure that she was um, her pl- primary placement was in the typical classroom and they we just we opted for pull pull-out sessions um, for pull-out services. So she pulls out for 20% of the day and is um, helped with the uh, special education 
kindergarten teacher who we love and I think she's brilliant and I really kind of struggled with like are we doing the right thing should she be with somebody more like should she be with uh, the special ed teacher more because she has more experience she has more technical ability to help somebody like Laurel and we after going through a couple of months of her in this typical classroom we feel very strongly that we made the right decision mm -hmm. um she I asked her I say Laurel do you like the big classroom or your little classroom and she's like big classroom friends and she anytime we ask her what she likes at school it's hilarious because <laughs> she talks about eating out at school so she just eat out school and then we say okay like you got to eat out at school what else and she said playground school so she's all about lunch and recess, which also happened to be what I liked about school. So um, anyway, it's just so funny when she says like typical kids stuff, because I'm like, oh, okay, that's pretty typical for a little kid. Like they're just focused on playing and eating and that's all it is to her. But um, she loves school. She does not love sitting at home with us. She did not love during the pandemic being stuck with us. I think that that probably helped her love for school because she's like oh thank god I can be around other kids but she's really I mean she definitely you know when they send home schoolwork and it's like oh we're tracing names and it's mostly scribbles but like in the scribbles you can see a little bit of an L which we've been working we started with lines down in OT and then we started with lines across in LT and then or in OT and um, her name starts with an L so we're working our way towards an L and an O for Laurel um so we've been working for weeks and weeks and then I get this scribbledy piece of paper that says we're trying to trace names today and it's mostly scribbles but I see that little L and you can tell like she pushed the crayon really really hard to get that little <laughs> L out and I'm like oh my god I was just like we again celebrate those little tiny things I was like oh my god she did an L and so like most parents would see it and be like oh that's a pretty scribbly piece of paper she didn't trace her name very well but for me it was like oh my god that's like two months of OT work just to get that little L out so mm -hmm. um she's killing it in school she loves it and we kind of feel like until she proves that she is struggling or having too much difficulty that we would prefer her to be challenged academically. Um, I think that she has the capacity to be able to take care of herself one day and to have, you know, some form of secondary education someday. And I think so long as we believe she can and we're there to support her and she believes she can and she is the stubbornest anyone I've ever met in my life and I'm stubborn so that's saying something <laughs> but like she is she's gonna do it if she wants to do it so I feel like so long as we're all coming from a place of can like there's we're not gonna let somebody else hold her back like we will offer the support she needs and go more special ed if we need to but we just feel like why not challenge her and let her try and if she, you know, proves that she needs more help, then she needs more help. But I think that the system, even though everyone that we've come in contact with has her best interest at heart, is set up and geared in a way that kind of pushes you the other way. Like, um, you know, let's give her all the support. And then if she doesn't need the support, then we can wean off. But I think maybe the feeding therapy made us feel mm -hmm. like, you know, let's start from a place of can. And then if she demonstrates needing more support, then we'll give them more support. But um I just, that's kind of our perspective on it. And it's worked well for her so far. Uh, we've had those, I, I start to kind of get into a groove of there's nothing wrong with her and she's can be as normal as everybody else. Um, myself personally, like I am her biggest cheerleader and I come from this real place of like um, optimism with Laurel and Mandy has to kind of be like, well, you know, she may need some more help or support. Like she may need more special education help later if she's struggling with reading or writing. And I'm like, okay, so like, 
she starts to temper me down a little bit. So I'm not like, no, she's going to do it as fast as everyone else. So like, I accept that she's different, but that being said, like she started soccer. Um, she's in a little special needs soccer group and she loves it, but it is obvious that if we were in a regular soccer, she would just yeah. be lost and trampled. Um, so they have like little aides that go out and help them and walk around with them and teach them and and so it's a much different pace. So while we accept that she has differences and needs the extra help, we also try to make her childhood as, as typical as possible, um, just because we feel like that's the experience yeah. that she deserves. Yeah, she does deserve it because she, she has to She do, works so hard. She, she has a lot of extra that she has to do. She has a lot of extra doctor's appointments and extra therapies and you know, so, so we're just getting to the part where we can do some fun stuff, mm -hmm. which is awesome. Um, we've also seen, we've traveled for a couple of specialists with the hips and with the Kabuki and we always try to like fit in something, something fun. fun. Um, so it's not just a medical trip because those kind of stink. Um, so we always try to like go to an aquarium or this last time we went to Arbuckle Wilderness, which if you enjoy having a clean car, I do not suggest going. She loved it. It was like the time of her life. She kept saying, um, more llama. Is that what she kept saying? Like, yeah, she, she liked the thought it was hilarious, but I've you will need a car yeah. detail. It's horrific. I've it's, never been so stressed out driving <laughs> in my life. And those animals work together. Like, yeah, to get the car to stop. It's, it's a whole thing. They'll, like so. run out in front and just stop <laughs> right in front of your... Anyway, it was a whole thing, but we always try to do something fun like that so that the memory is of that thing and not, not necessarily seeing all these specialists stuff. all the time. So that's a tip, I guess, um, is to try to do fun stuff. Yeah. So but medically, trips. though, she's she's doing she's remarkably well. We've had uh, another new diagnosis of um, pediatric migraines. Oh, yeah. um, so that's that's something that we deal with. She probably has once a month or so. Yeah, once a once a month an episode with that. I mean, she gets like super pale and lethargic and um, kind of falls asleep. But we have rescue meds for that now. Mm -hmm. It's not attributed to the epilepsy of any kind. It's just it's a we separate. Yeah, it's we think it's separate. The only way to really know that for sure would be if we could potentially have an EEG done while she happens to have one of those episodes which is pretty impossible but we're she's had enough seizures and she's had enough of these episodes with us where we feel pretty confident that they're it's different separate. things yeah and we we've noticed some triggers like weather um uh -huh. bright sunlight yeah is, so we make she has to wear um sunglasses when you know she's outside she's outside and that's been helpful weather changes are definitely one chocolate seems um, to be a trigger for yeah those. sometimes chocolate um so we just try to steer clear of anything that we can think of that happened before one of those so that we can limit it happening so maybe there's some allergies there maybe a food allergy sure. or something that absolutely you trigger yeah um we are still on the hip journey um so i know that we mentioned oh, just today yeah, I we know. got her surgery date yeah. for her hip revision i know She's... that we mentioned that she had been in a spica cast for six months when she had her second surgery this was before we got the kabuki syndrome diagnosis after we got the kabuki syndrome diagnosis and her hips came out again our surgeon was like uh, you need to see somebody yeah. more specialized <laughs> our surgeon he happened to be familiar with kabuki syndrome which is very rare <laughs> Uh, he has like one other patient that has it. So he started like checking other orthopedic things that he knows are associated. But he said, you know, no amount of time in that cast is going to tighten those ligaments up. So you probably need to see someone who's a bit more specialized. Uh, so we saw a surgeon in Dallas 
Uh, we got a surgery date today. So come December 13th, uh, hard pants will be back. Uh, that's what we call her spike of cast is her hard pants. Yeah. Do y'all have a plan? Do y'all have a plan to uh, maneuver school with the hard pants? Uh, we're it's in limbo. We're yeah, gonna have a meeting and discuss meeting it. Discuss. She'll have a wheelchair. She'll, yeah, they're gonna hook us up with a wheelchair. So it's scheduled like a week before they go out for uh, uh, winter break anyway. So she'll so they'll be out for two. She'll she'll have her surgery uh, the week before, and then they'll be out for two weeks. And so by the time they go back, that's only three more weeks, hopefully, that she should be in the spike of cast. So we're looking at potentially three weeks in school in the spike of cast, depending on what we can work out uh, with our IEP team about accommodations for that. And there, I'm sure, I'm sure there, there are other options that we're not even thinking about, like, yeah. you know, may, if she needs to maybe just do half days during that time or, you know, there are things I'm sure that I'm we sure. can, that we get, we just haven't had the meeting yet to really figure out how that's going to work. Um, and then of course, when she had the surgeries prior, she wasn't walking yet. She did eventually start walking. So she started walking when she was about three, three and a half, somewhere in there. Uh, so she's had that taste of freedom and she wants nothing to do with strollers or oh, yeah the second she started walking she was that, done with that yeah she's like I don't want to be carried I want to walk I want to do it myself so and she is quite independent so so we expect this um go around to be exponentially worse although she's usually um, pretty agreeable yeah I I and I say worse in the sense that she's going to be so I feel like at least for the first week, so angry that she can't do. Well, and she's also potty trained now. We took advantage mm -hmm. of the pandemic situation to spend, it took us, what, about nine months uh -huh. to potty train her. Um, we did like potty parties. We did like the potty wash. We did all the things you can do. We did all the books. We did all the things. So it took a really long time and she still has some accidents, but you kind of worry about yeah, like, like the regression, regression of that, that with the being in the cast, <laughs> but um, yeah, she'll, she'll come out of it unscathed like she does. And I, but I also expect that once the cast come off, she's going to probably heal. I mean, get back to where she was exponentially faster than right. she did prior as right. well. So, and we have a better chance of it working because she's bigger, because she's bigger and she, and she does walk than we did when she didn't, because part of it is getting that pressure on that pelvic bone to, yeah. to get that to stay. So now that she can walk, we have a better chance of it, of it actually being successful. Just so really looking forward to potentially removing that barrier for her. Like yeah. it, then we're just dealing with the hearing loss and the mild cognitive impairment and epilepsy. the epilepsy and, and yeah, anyway, um, but it's like, then she's almost like, yeah. I don't know. It's just easier. Right. It's like easier the more things you can take care of, yeah. obviously. But so. it should improve her balance. And yeah. She won't fall she down as much. Keep up with kids her age a little bit better. It's not that I expect that, you know, she'll be able to run the soccer field with a typical kid, but, you know, she might be able to keep up for part of the time at least, you know, right. so just whatever we can do to, to kind of get her, get her there. We're willing, we're willing to go through. So so we're excited about it. We are excited about it. And, and dreading. <laughs> we're excited and dreading. To be awesome and awful at the same time. Yeah. So. But yeah, she's just like the coolest kid ever. Mm -hmm. um, we're just grateful for the for the journey and all the stuff that we've been through, really, I would say. Mm -hmm. She is amazing. She is absolutely amazing. And she's got two incredible moms. I mean, you guys are just phenomenal parents.
And uh, we, we all need to be taking lessons from y'all on not only attitude, but advocacy and and just cheering our kids on um, because you guys have done a great job of, of getting her to where she is now. So yeah. you know, y'all did the hard work. It's very <laughs> impressive. Thank you for listening to this episode of We Saved You a Seat. Oklahoma Family Network promotes family-centered care and provides tools so families can make informed decisions, advocate for improved services, build connections among families, and serve as a trusted resource in health care of children and young adults. If you would like to become a supporting family or get in touch with another family, please contact Oklahoma Family Network at oklahomafamilynetwork.org or by calling 405-271-5072.